Hello, race fans, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am your slightly more European host this week, Danny O'Dwyer. Drew Scanlon is out on assignment, uh, but I am delighted to be joined by the one and only Rob Zachney. What's life on the East Coast like, my friend? Toasty like here? Uh, yeah, very toasty. Uh, we finally started running the air conditioning this weekend, Ooh. and uh, I hate it. I miss I miss those cool, <laughs> uh, mild spring days. Uh, already, I have that like head cold you get when you start running the air for the first time in a year. Totally. Yeah. yeah. We uh, I miss AC a little bit because uh, in Maryland we had it because those man a swampy ass summers they swamp were, yeah. You couldn't not have it, basically. Uh, I mean, people did for centuries, but you know. Uh, but we don't here. They don't really do it so much in in California, or at least up here in North Northern California. So we don't. So I've cracked out the. Uh, I've I've been doing a lot of work to make sure it doesn't sound like it on the mic. But I've got like a little tiny twenty dollar fan just pointed at my shorts and my legs to keep us cool because we've got some hot breaking news here, folks. On Shift F1. We don't do news every week anymore, unless we need to, but it just so happens that a whole bunch of news dropped this morning uh, that we can jump into right away. We're going to cover off some of the driver shenanigans that happened last week too, but uh, more than anything, we're going to be talking about the information that has come up on not just what's going on this year, but also the uh, 2021 regs, which have been pushed back a year, and also uh, some of those regulations have sort of been, I guess, the uh, the the... The magnifying glass has been finally put to them. They've announced uh, some of them. Uh, our show, of course, is pre- funded by everyone over at patreon.com slash shiftf1. Thank you so much. Uh, the race day for Monaco was a beautiful disaster. It is available uh, on our YouTube channel, and they, those folks had it in early access. Thank you for so much for all of the feedback on Driven. It was a very fun podcast to do. Rob has already put a couple of interesting ones in our Discord that we might do. Uh, we'll probably keep it to ourselves, and we need to get Drew involved in that, but um, we should have a fun one up uh, for the next month as well, as we are almost in July. God, this, or June, this year is absolutely flying past without a race. Um, so let's talk about the year as as we see it, I guess. Let's jump into some news. So first of all, we have uh, another, the calendar keeps getting shifted, you know, continuously. We have another uh, revised calendar expected this coming Monday. Uh, the big news over the past couple of weeks was the question mark over Silverstone. It looked like it wasn't going to well, it looks like it hadn't got the, you know, special exemption effectively that uh, a race or an event needs to have to be able to take place. Um, there was some humming and hawing on uh, the F1 press about that, uh, but a couple of days ago it was confirmed that they had gotten that exemption. Um, the UK yeah, sort of political world is in a little bit of a turmoil at the moment with, you know, the, the government not following in its own rules. So, uh, Rob, you were saying before we went live that, you know, maybe it's something to keep an eye on just in case there's some more uh, jiggery-pokery going on there. But for the moment, at least, we will be back at Silverstone. Yeah, I think we... It it appears like we have the rough outline for what the European calendar is going to look like. This is supposed to get confirmed uh, next week. But obviously, as you sort of been saying throughout all this, like, all of this depends on the local government signing off. And... UK's made noise about being okay with signing this off. And this is kind of a matter of national interest for the UK because mm. Formula One, if it is anything, it is a British industry. 
in God, if they can't put it on in Silverstone, where which is like a stone's throw from several <clears throat> of the teams, right? Right, but at the same time, like, uh, it is kind of a it's kind of your definition of a Pasha's sport, and right now you have a ministry uh, that has once again kind of shot itself in the foot uh, with the Dominic Cummings uh, debacle. So, I like I'm curious. I like I I think that Formula One will agree to this calendar where they're starting up at Austria uh, July 5th, etc. Like, I bet that gets voted on and, like, confirmed by the sport. I am curious whether all the pieces fit together with the local partners, whether that part yeah. comes together. And it's problematic in that way that you're, you're right. You talk about the local, like, this is as much a national governance thing as it is uh, local government stuff, as it is the... You know, I'm sure the racetracks themselves will probably be more open than most, but um, the way I, we're hearing news from each one of these places. The last time I heard that Austria sounded like they were pretty okay with this, um, but like you said, we have to wait for all of the pieces to get clicked into place. Um, back-to-back Silverstone races on the 19th and 26th of July and the 26th of July, 2nd of August, uh, were among the combinations that had previously been under consideration. Um, but the introduction of a 14-day quarantine for UK arrivals, that's a lot of Europe's doing that as well, actually. It's the same in Ireland. Um, when I'm looking to see if I can get back at any stage in, next this year. Um, from uh, Which is starting on June 8th, obliged F1 to build in a safety net and put Silverstone later, with Hungary moved into a July slot. So the, what it looks like at the moment is starting on the 5th of July in Austria, that's Spa, um, the 12th of July then in, in Spa again, then we yep. have... Sorry. Uh, all right? That's not Spa. Oh, it's not? No, oh, sorry, Belgium. Austria's Belgium. Dribble. What am I saying? Yeah, sorry, so, Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Austria. Uh, believe yeah. me, I, if they were doing back-to-back Spa <laughs> races, like, I'd be like, this, you know, uh, this, this rules. Uh, no, but, Look yeah, what happens. So, I'm, I'm out of Europe five or six years, and I forget which countries, Austria and Belgium, haven't been to both of them. Sorry. Um, yeah, Hungary getting a swing then on the 19th of July uh, and the 12th of August, and then Silverstone, 9th of August, and the 16th, and then Spain, presumably Barcelona, <laughs> and not not the, the street circuit, uh, on the 30th of August, and then good old Spa uh, coming up, um, and then Monza after that. So, uh, yeah, sorry, 30th of August for Spa, 6th of September for, for Monza. See, this is what happens when I write the dates European style. You can't read them anymore. You've been, yeah, sorry, you've been away that's... too long, man. <laughs> I, I, like, I thought I was being helpful. No, but uh, I... I've, it sounds like a decent calendar. I, I think yeah. it seems workable, but I'm also not clear on what happens after that. Because remember, there's the whole thing of right. to be an official F1 season, uh, they have eight. to go is somewhere that... else. Yeah, oh, sorry, you're right. Yeah, isn't it? It's like eight races minimum, I think. And three continents. Like three continents? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, okay. Do you know what you do? We stop this Baku being in Europe bullshit. <laughs> just just for, for a moment... It's like Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest, right? It's just like, we'll just, we'll just say it's, I don't know where uh, Azerbaijan should, maybe it is a European country, right? But like, let's, let's just say, let's just say it's part of Asia? That, yeah. yeah. Well, and like, We're are probably they going to, to get one of them done in the Middle East, uh, for instance, which surely. seems like it should be workable. 100%. Uh, I, and then of course, like, you have the weird dynamics of, the travel logistics are really tough, but by all accounts, like Singapore has done really well in containing this, right? Like you see a lot of stories saying that uh, 
Singapore things have are starting to sort of return to normal. Mm. Uh, obviously, as we've seen everywhere, the pain and risk of COVID-19 is really unevenly distributed. Uh, one yeah. of the things that sort of popped up in Singapore, as we've seen everywhere else, is like vulnerable populations of uh, poor workers get mm. hit with this way harder that happened in Singapore. So we'll, we'll see how this all fits together. Um, also, the last I'd heard was that things weren't looking good for Circuit of the Americas uh, for F1 right. this year. Um, which is interesting, because like, NASCAR is running again. Uh, IndyCar is still hoping to get the season going uh, later this summer. So I don't know what the issue is with Coda. It might just be a, a calendar timing thing that gets tricky. But God, I can't imagine anyone involved in commerce in Austin would want to put any roadblocks up for this, considering they've already lost out by Southwest. I can't imagine what... that's. This is their other biggie for the year. Um, you'd wonder. And I have friends in Austin at the moment, and it sounds like they're being... You know, it's Texas, right? So they're being yeah. pretty lax, like more than a lot of Western states. Well, that's that's the other part of this, is right now this calendar, we're in this odd point with COVID-19 where a couple things have become clear. One is that as we just sort of alluding to, who this disease affects and afflicts the worst is very unevenly distributed. And by and large, the people who make a lot of political decisions are insulated from that pain and risk, and so they're very, they're very keen to open back up. Mm. Also, in a lot of places, supposedly, we're sort of past where the peak should be for the disease if the curve is effectively flattened. Uh, but if the reopening is done poorly there's a chance that all these dates we're talking about end up getting blown up because you start seeing second wave infections that again start to overwhelm uh overwhelm overwhelm uh infrastructure so like right now we're at this interesting point where probably an f1 season seems more feasible than it seemed since uh australia was called off but if this is mishandled uh and if the sort of optimism that we're seeing right now about our ability to contain this uh proves to be unfounded then all of this could go away again as you start seeing uh reactions to that though it does feel like there's a weird momentum here where a lot of decision makers will not react to new information come you know what i mean like it, it does start to feel like for better or probably worse uh even if you start seeing second wave infections political will to keep local businesses and infrastructure shut down is just starting to evaporate yeah it feels like we're in we're in a sort of a a little window of optimism that the sooner these races and i think a lot of this has to do with just like the erosive effect that uh uh, or optimism creating effect i don't know of seeing some other sports like seeing nascar back and seeing you know and, and seeing that curve flatten in a lot of these countries f1 has always had like unique risks in relation to this but there are some challenges that are have nothing to do with them one of them being the chance of a second wave happening especially the further we get into into autumn into the fall you know if we're looking at these monza stopping in the start of september there's not really that much of a gap in time to to get anywhere else you know what i mean like you're talking like three months window to try and make that happen and in what many people have been saying is has a high probability of having that sort of second wave that'll make everyone a little bit more nervous again and, and restrictive 
Yeah. So I, I don't know. You've been you've been the pessimist on this front. Like, do you like? I'm at the, I'm at the point where I think we're gonna see some racing this year. Yeah. I I I think I am definitely the way you said it was perfect. Where I am at this at this point in time. I'm not saying that at July it'll be it'll work, but at this point in time, it feels the most the likely that it has ever been. Um, and I think me seeing other races happening and other sports happening. Uh, I you know I've watched like three UFC events, you know, and they were bizarre, but yeah. you know it it feels more normal again. So I think I can imagine it. I think um. The Red Bull Ring is a is a pretty good shout. It, it's it's owned by a team. It just feels like that's the type of controlled environment you can get away with it on, similar to what sort of UFC has been doing. Um, I think the UK is a toughie because I think there's a lot of will wanting that to happen, but the UK has been the hot spot. England mostly has been the hot spot of of uh, the pandemic in Europe. Um, yeah, or has been the one that's handled it the least well. So I think that is problematic. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like Spain again, same thing. They're, they're in a a tough, a tough spot there. So I think I do, I do think we will see a, a race in the summer, but it's, you know, I, I, I cannot see them doing this three continent thing. It just seems like, especially now as we're looking at South America as a, as a hotspot, it's, it's almost a shame we don't have a race in New Zealand because that probably would have been a good spot. They seem to have handled it pretty well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, there's there, there's an intersection with how competently the local governments handle this. I think that's probably your complication with the UK. Uh, but again, they badly need the sport to survive. Uh, yeah. And we also, I also don't know to what degree our TV rights deals dependent on a formal F1 championship playing out over the course of the year, right? Like, mm. d- does I could see a solution to this being look. We couldn't meet the formal requirements for an official world F1 championship, but who gives a shit? Like, we ran a bunch of F1 races. Here's our champion for this year. We're just not calling them the world champion. Uh, right. Remember, there's that whole ridiculous thing with, the, with Formula E where, you know, the, we got oh, those yeah. press releases. Oh, it's finally a world championship. And I had no cares? idea. Yeah. yeah like, I, this, I this assumed it was any. before. <laughs> yeah. It's like... Yeah. Uh, but it could, but if it means something with TV rights, then it means something for the sport. Uh, the que- the you know the question is: Do the contracts require them running a champion by FIA a championship by FIA standards, or do they just need to run some races on the TV? Yeah, because uh, I think that's probably your 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 major factor. Um, but this had massive impacts on the bottom line of just about everyone involved in the sport, and I think that's also produced some real pressure to get control of costs hmm. in some interesting ways and maybe address some of the some of the long-standing issues with, with how F1 has been working. Uh, in the last, last couple months, a lot of really surprising agreements and changes have been pushed through. Uh, as we all sort of knew, they were going, they, they're, they're holding off on introducing the new era of aerodynamic spec and engine spec uh, that was supposed to happen next season that is being pushed off to 2022. Uh, so that's, you know, that's been finally made official, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was kind of a, it was a done deal. Everyone knew yeah, we kind of assumed it probably, right? But where things start getting murkier for me is there's, 
a host of little changes that have also hit that aren't as dramatic as the arrival of the new spec cars, hmm. uh, but they could have some pretty profound effects on the sport. Uh, let's talk about the, the big picture stuff first with okay. ch- changes to, to F1. So a lot uh, of the stuff has been announced in the past like couple of hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to dive into what are some of the ones that are the most you think impactful? Oh boy, because um, there's a lot to cover here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they changed they changed the international sporting code. Uh, a bunch of financial and uh, sporting regulations and technical regulations around Formula One, uh, and I think those agreements are supposed to be ratified possibly like today as we're recording i'm not okay. sure they're, they're they're doing like a a an electronic vote uh to to push this through but uh so one of the things that appears to be going through is that there's going to be new cost controls uh introduced to the sport uh so they'd already agreed to cut they'd already agreed to cut the numbers uh down to uh, 175 million dollars uh, per year. Uh, now they are going to try to get it down to 135 million dollars uh, right. by 2023 for for each team. Uh, and that does have some. There's some wiggle room on that, but that is going to constrain a lot of Formula One operations. So one of the things that's already happened is uh, this month. McLaren had some significant layoffs um, across the entire company. Uh, their customer car, not not F one customer car, but like their street right. car. Uh, yeah, part the of the P ones. Yeah, <laughs> just took an absolute beating. Uh, but even the form, the even the racing division uh, lost about seventy people, and right. okay. that's actually in line with what you might expect as they begin to uh, be on a glide path down to the $175 million cap. That's going to affect different teams a lot of ways. I'm really curious how this affects like Mercedes, who, I don't know, their budget has seemed like it's been pretty expansive uh, in the past. So I'm interested in seeing how all this plays out. But the remarkable thing is they've agreed to cut it down to $135 million uh, in the space of a couple of years. This was, like Ferrari, I think the last time we talked, was saying that, Dropping below 150 million was unthinkable, um, and yeah. they were they were making noises about exploring IndyCar again, which seemed like a pretty hollow threat uh, coming from Ferrari at this point. Uh, they they played that car before; it wasn't going to work again. But it's remarkable that now they've they've shaved it down to 135, and I think that also underlines the degree to which F1's kind of on the brink. Like, yeah. There's a lot of. It's not clear how many manufacturers are going to want to stay in the sport. Given we'll be able to. Yeah. Um, I guess sorry, was, manufacturers. You're right. Yeah. I just Renault seems like the one that's very scary to people because it looks like we've heard news coming out that saying Renault might not, as a entity, may not survive the pandemic. Yeah. I, in, in so far that the government may not be willing to, you know, bankroll it anymore. So what does right, that mean? That, that again seemed like somebody trying to uh 
to, yeah, terrify the government to underwrite or guarantee <laughs> yeah. uh, another injection of financing. It's a lot of uh, that going around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do think like Renault was kind of its its future as a program was questionable. Uh, Mercedes, they can deny it all they want, but like I think Mercedes also kind of has a questionable future just because what is there to what's the value in staying here? Hmm. Uh, so bringing these costs down is pretty critical. I think it was especially critical to keep the smaller teams in uh, because it's not its not a good sport if there's only three teams racing uh, <laughs> at the end of it. So they also needed to do something to keep those teams in, which brings us to some really wild changes. Uh, Actually, can I do one little note on yes. that? Just because I, I just saw that F1 have tweeted something and they linked to an article that was published a couple of hours ago so I think we probably have the information still right, but there's one little paragraph at the bottom that I thought was quite interesting, which might pertain to future stuff. Um, uh, you know, everyone's trying to like dial back their costs a little bit, but um, I was interested in the headcount issue. So the, there's a, under the subheading here, have there been any changes to what is and isn't included in the cap? I um, just want to read out two little paragraphs quickly. Uh, the initial cap covered expenditure that relates to car performance. It excludes all marketing costs, driver uh, fees, salaries, and the cost of the team's three highest paid personnel, this remains the case. So we knew that. Um, but this is an interesting paragraph. Further changes have been made since, such as excluding salary costs for staff on maternity and paternity leave, as well as sick leave, plus the cost of medical benefits provided to team employees. This is ensured that teams are not motivated to cut costs in these areas and to stay within the cap. So we've seen probably that they're still doing it, but in the case of McLaren, um, although... Again, that could be part of a wider structural change that's going to happen regardless because of what's happening at the moment. But it is interesting at least to see that there was some headway to try and make that not be where they cut people. Um, uh, Because obviously we want this to be, you know, an effective sport and a a sport that is not governed by how much you can spend. But also, you know, nobody necessarily wants to create a situation where a shitload of people are going to lose their jobs. Um, So at least there's something, there's there's that. But uh, yeah, what that means... What that means in terms of F1 in a bubble and these rules, and what that means given the global economic conditions we find ourselves in, you know, it's impossible to tell. Um, sorry, just wanted to make... Yeah, that no, that's a good there. point. Uh, so, there's also been this long-standing issue of how do you make F1 more fair? More, more specifically, how do you start breaking some of the positive feedback loop where success breeds success, failure breeds failure? Hmm. Uh, maybe this goes far enough. Probably doesn't, but it's a start. Like the fact that F one is considering this is pretty out there for for a sport with with this uh, with F one's history. So the thing they appear to be on the cusp of uh, signing off on here is um, actually no, I think they I think that post I you think, just talked about like formalizes it. Like this yeah, is I now, think this I is think a done deal. This is the most breaking news we have ever had. It's literally yeah. in minutes that's coming through. Yeah. Uh. So they have introduced aerodynamic testing restrictions and what that means is basically most successful team the championship winner gets less wind tunnel time than the it's on a sliding scale so they get the least the team that did the worst uh gets the most wind tunnel time and so there's there's some math involved here for the 2021 season uh, the championship leader gets 90% of permitted aerodynamic runtime. Uh, and then it rises in 2.5% increments uh, to uh, 105% for the last place team. Uh, 
112.5, I think. Pardon? 112.5, I think it is. Oh, is that that might be you might be looking at a different document than I was. I think yeah, they might have an updated one here on a on on their website. Um I'll send it to you in Discord. Yeah, this one here says for 2021 it's going to be 112.5. So the fifth place basically has the, you know, 100% amount. Um yeah. this one just got published on formula1a uh, formula1.com. And then it gets more dramatic oh after gosh. the next season. It, it like, gets so dramatic. Yeah, when they hit <laughs> when so after 2021, like that's sort of the we're introducing you to this concept. Like, here's here's your spoon. Here comes the airplane. <laughs> and Mercedes, like, gets a little bit less wind tunnel time. Then the next year, it's like you're going to school, kid. Yeah. Uh, the first place team gets 70% of That's the aerodynamic, uh, like, uptime, basically. And the last place team gets 215%. Is that amazing? That's like two-thirds. That's, that's a significant reduction. And it, I think... You like somebody who knows more about how these teams are set up uh, can weigh in on this. I'm not even sure every team has their own wind tunnel, right? Uh, but at the very least, like this kind of cuts the advantage you can get from having a fully equipped time. So if you're like renting wind tunnel time, uh, you are, you know, at least on a more level playing field with uh, like Mercedes or or such. But remember the other thing that's been a consistent issue has been that uh, computational fluid dynamics or? yeah 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 like a lot of teams that haven't had access to uh a lot of wind tunnel time have relied a lot on computer modeling which is just not as good and then even there computer modeling still it's money in good results out right like if you can just bring a finer grained model to the you know to the simulation you will get better outcomes. Like one of the things that the wrap on the Williams two years ago was that basically their simulations were worthless. Right. Uh, they built to a sim to a flawed model, and when that thing hit the track at, I think they were doing training at Jerez that year. Uh, but when that thing hit hit the track for for uh, preseason testing, it was an utter dog. Mm. Um, and so I think this is the other thing they're trying to push against is this notion that you can just be completely blindsided uh by how bad your by by how what a disaster your went your uh aerodynamic testing has been while Mercedes and Ferrari basically have limitless uh you know ability to to fine tune their their model there's I'm I'm trying to see in case there is a delineation between aero testing if that means CFD and wind tunnel. Because I we I do remember when we were talking about this before, they mentioned that they were going to be capping computational fluid dynamic stuff as well. Um, yeah. So it says here, there's, there's one or two lines here, but next season in conjunction with the introduction of the cost cap, the default allowance will be reduced by more than 30% to just 40 runs per week. Okay, so that's down from 65. Furthermore, for the very first time, each team's allowance of wind tunnel and CFD testing time will be defined by on-track performance. Yeah, so I think this might actually apply to both wind tunnel and oh, that's computational fluid dynamics. It's okay. kind of vague. They don't mention it enough. They only There's only two mentioning of CFD in the whole thing. But uh, So maybe, again, this is also breaking that I'm sure we'll get more details on the bit nuts and bolts soon, but that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um... So the other, the other thing they're introducing 
is uh, a power unit freeze hmm. in 2023. So that comes after the new spec. But right. after 2023, they're freezing the power unit. Uh, and it sounds like they're going to have that locked in until maybe like 2025. That's wild. Yeah. And the other, the other funny thing is it sounds like, uh, unless the, the new information contradicts this, because, again, I was working off kind of a, uh, a term sheet, uh, but it sounds like they're kind of going to something like, um, not quite a token system, but basically once a year you would get to introduce new versions of the engine, the turbo, uh, the MGU-H, uh, uh, and right. you get to do that once per season. Uh, so basically, you're allowed to update yeah. those components, uh, you know, annually, and then the dog's home. Uh, but yeah, so you you be you be able to update update those components annually. Uh, yeah, there was uh, something mentioned about that again a few weeks ago. I, we did have something on. I remember that being an issue where, the, yeah, not quite a token system, but there would be some, but very restrictive way of them allowing you to do some sort of iteration. I think um, I think Fritz Theodor Rankin, his gloss on it was the FAA is currently planning a new engine formula for 2025 to replace the V6 turbo hybrid. Uh, progressively freezing the current designs will allow power unit manufacturers to make significant savings on their development costs at a time when budgets are under serious pressure as a result of the pandemic. I think what this is this points to is they needed to bring costs down up front just to keep like the wheels on the sport, basically. Right. But also, at, even as things return to normal, I think the expectation is things are still going to be a little bit on a wing and a prayer, and they need to get away from massive ongoing engine development costs. Um, so that, that, that is my guess, is they're kind of preparing for a world where for the next four or five, six years, mm. uh, like resources are more stretched uh, than they've been, and uh, F1 teams are a little more cost sensitive uh, than they've been in a number of years. Crazy. Um, we'll see if there's any more movement on any of this stuff as well over the coming months. You know, this whole thing is so fluid uh, and dynamic that um, we'll we'll have to see where uh, where it all Boo. ends up. But, uh, yeah, thank you. I was trying to see if I could squeeze computational in there, but that was a stretch too far even for this guy's dad jokes. Um, on to more lighthearted news, unless you're Daniel Apt. This is insane. I could not believe the story. It's just, let's, let's jump into it. Uh, Daniel Apt, uh, if you watch Formula E, you're very familiar with him. Um, he is a driver for Audi. Uh, he has been uh, suspended from the team. He has been released by Audi after a eSports debacle, let's call it, in which he... Um, essentially hired or got a ringer to drive his race for him um, while pretending that it was he, in fact, who was racing. So if you want, you can go check. We've been talking about the Formula E esports stuff they've been putting on. They're all up on YouTube. You can go check this out. It's very strange. Um, this was the uh, Race at Home Challenge on behalf of UNICEF. Uh, Apt finished third. Um, Roland uh, nabbed the win from Stoffel van Dorn um, as he was fighting with... Um, who we assumed was Daniel Apt at the time. Um, the post-race interview, did you watch the interview? Yeah. 
It's so strange. So it's like it's the the three of them talking, but one of them, Daniel Aft, just has a black screen. Black square. Yep. Uh, and at that stage, I actually didn't realize this because I didn't watch any of the, the interviews afterwards. Um, Stoffel was kind of like onto him or something. Well, so like this whole thing is weird. He wasn't really hiding it. Like it sounds like he may have been open about it on his stream. Like oh, okay. he was also like like simulcasting might be a weird word for it, but he was on his own stream. So I think he was already kind of doing this in the open. He was just not like it wasn't known to the mainstream for the event. He'd also been alluding to it uh according to him like in a WhatsApp group uh, that he has with other drivers where like sort of dropping hints. And the idea was that was it like I don't a know. Joke? It's a shitty gag, right? Like it's yeah. not really that funny. Uh, you thought it would be funny in his apology video. He was like, "The idea came up that it would be funny. It would be a funny move. A sim racer basically drove for me to show the other real drivers what he's capable of, and use the chance to drive against them. We wanted to document it and create a funny story for the fans with it." I just let's say let's just hot treat YouTube this as content. A, yeah, exactly. It's shit. It's shit. Like, <laughs> this is, like, this is not news to anyone. Like, can you believe a sim racer can hang with the, the big dogs? At a, you're playing R-Factor, man. Yeah. Yeah, I expect someone who's good at R-Factor is going to rock at, <laughs> at R-Factor. Like, That's why Lando Norris is creaming everyone at the moment, because he's, yeah. he's a sim racer as well. Right, like, it's just, it's, like, you're you're proving a principle that's not novel to anybody anymore. This isn't... Uh, you know, the, this isn't like getting a uh, finding wild talent out there. Like this mm. is just the this is the nature of sim racing at this point. So it's it's a weird goof. Um, and also the thing that um, you know, God, I need to pull up the byline here real quickly. No uh, worries. Matt Q, yeah, over at Autosport pointed out that uh, Herzing. The the sim racer who filled in for Abt, he kind of like he made a lot of contact with Stoffel, uh, right. and so he like he didn't have necessarily a bad race, but he had a an eventful one in a way that affected results. And so it's not like he just went in there and dominated and like drove a clean race. Like arguably he screwed up someone else's race. Uh, so it begins like you know at that point you are changing the event. Right, and and he also did not win. Yeah, <laughs> despite being a really good sim racer. Um, the the this line from Stoffel was in the post race interview is is telling. Um, he says, "Yeah, I mean, I had an okay start, and then Daniel came up the inside. To be honest, I'm questioning if it was really Daniel in the car, but anyway, it was a bit of contact there. Someone laps in the background at that point. Daniel's screen is blacked out, and they don't interview Daniel. So, what happened after this was pretty fast and pretty, um." Shocking, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about this. To be honest, it seems no. I, I actually don't think I like it. No, it's yeah. Um, so basically, uh, I'll just read the statement from Audi. Um, they decided to suspend him. Um, and uh, the the comment that they put afterwards is, and this is like they they have a long standing, uh, you know, he's been with them for a long time, like a half dozen years. Anyway, sorry, I'll just read it. Out. Daniel Apt, after six years and 63 races, will no longer drive for Audi in Formula E. He has been part of our Formula E team since the debut race of the series in September 2014 and our official factory driver since the autumn of 2017. In Mexico, 
And at our home round in Berlin, Apt took two fantastic Formula E victories and scored a total of 10 podium results. With Daniel, we celebrated a great success and made enormous strides within Formula E. We are thankful for our time together and look back on it proudly. However, integrity, transparency, and consistent compliance with applicable rules, especially with regards to the past, are top priorities for us at Audi. We stand by our culture of tolerating mistakes. However, the incidents that took place during the Race at Home Challenge sim racing series were not a mistake, but a conscious decision to go against the rules. That is uh, what makes the big difference for us. Therefore, unfortunately, we have no other alternative than suspending Daniel Apt. Um, so, is the other thing that they're talking about the fact that he was kind of like hanging out with his ringer in the... So I thought that. Right. It turns out that's not true. Oh, okay. Uh, so the ringer, I think, was off-site. Um, so when they do the whole grid view of all the drivers with their rigs, uh, you can see Daniel App is not there alone. There is somebody in the background. So I was wondering, like, you know, it, it was unclear as to, had he, he brought was... this person in? Hmm. person is in a different country. Uh, I think one of the things that is subtext in the Audi thing, uh, again, Autosport sort of brought this up, and I think I think they brought this up at race fans as well, is that Audi is rather famously, Audi and Volkswagen Group is rather famously associated with faking test results uh, right now. And so there's a bit of, um, you know, Caesar's wife must be above reproach going on with their response to this, uh, which I think is a bit unfair. Like, you know, let's talk about the, the, the gravity of the two things that were done. Daniel Abt did a bad goof and changed the result of a race that I'm not, I don't know how seriously people were taking it. Uh, it seems like a lot of drivers were already kind of in on it, and I'm not sure. This thing feels different from Paginot taking out Lando, right? Yeah, like, it's, it's, yeah. What, it, it, it feels different in that it feels far less severe and stupid. Yeah. Well, but, and it wasn't uh, but trying also, to troll someone specifically. No, it wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah, and it wasn't like, and it's like, it just it's a bad look overall for like loads of different ways. But also, I think th- he did this after that happened. So he like he should have read the room on this stuff yes. at this stage, you know. But 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 I'm with you. It's nowhere near as as egregious. No, and I and I think like if we're talking about you know Audi and Volkswagen Group, what they did was they had sort of a long like a long running. Uh campaign of fraud against regulatory bodies like that is that is what they did uh and so for you know it's a bit it's a bit high horsey uh to be talking about you know transparency integrity etc uh you know they yeah they took their money they faked the tests that absolutely had environmental impact that probably shortened lifespans for people like that Mm. is that is what you do when you put that into into a system so uh I don't know. They they sort of they gave him they kind of gave him the career death penalty uh, for this, and I think you know you noticed that we we should sort of judge how is this being received by his peers. Yeah, the Paginot thing and the Norris thing was really divisive. A lot of people did not like what happened at that indie race and the way it was handled. Like, yeah, there were people who said it was just a game. Who cares? There were a lot of drivers who also thought that it was pretty dickish. A lot of the stuff that had happened there at the at the end of that IndyCar season. Yeah. Ditto Ferrucci, who already people don't like in, mm. in Indy. Uh 
it doesn't seem like drivers in Formula E took this quite as seriously. Yeah, a lot of them think, seem to think that it's overkill. Um, I have a couple of lines here from different folks. Uh, just in general, a lot of them appear to be kind of be done with streaming. I think this has kind of like uh, spoiled the, the broth a little bit for them. Um, uh, this one uh, from Jean-Arc Verne. After all, this is a game that should be taken seriously, but it's a game, um, he said. Uh, then, I'm sorry, this one is from... Uh, Antonio Felix da Costa said, no more streaming. Sorry, guys. Oh, sorry, I posted James Collado. Uh, I guess streaming is done for me too, said Antonio Felix da Costa. Um, I think this one is from JEV as well. Uh, yeah. Then what about all the drivers crashing on purpose? That would probably get their license removed if it was reality. Uh, I've been out of almost all races for unsportsmanlike behaviors and drivers using me as brakes, which, I mean, if you watch the, the Monaco race this week as well, I mean, it was always going to happen in Monaco. But a similar type of thing, right? Um, Autosports Q uh, argued that uh, it had to go this way. Uh, uh, a line from that article here. Then you must consider that uh, Herzing didn't have a quiet race. He made repeated contact with early race leader Stoffel Van Dorn, which led to both running wide and the Mercedes driver losing out on his maiden victory in the series to Oliver Rowland. Sorry, Olivia Rowland. Uh, apt stop like armor changed the outcome of the race. So it could be which would be a real shame, the fact that the performance of the ringer um, yeah. made too much noise and then uh, ended up uh, that having an issue on it as well. Um, what is your feeling? I feel like, like as a professional, you should just have your head screwed on and clearly there is a mismatch with people, how seriously people are taking this, so you should just take it seriously. And this was stupid. But it does seem wild. that To me, this feels like Audi must have... They maybe they wanted to release them already after six years. They you know they don't know how, if they're going to be in the sport next year yeah. or cost cutting or something like that. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Is it, it's a an opportunistic excuse to get rid of them because it seems like a it seems like a big stretch, like a rap on the knuckles, a fine something, sure. But like yeah. cutting a driver has been with your program for six years. That seems crazy. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little. I think it's a bit corny uh, to take it this seriously. Yeah, uh, they don't look good. Like, no, no, it, it's kind of you're making an example out of somebody who didn't do anything that that was that severe. Like this wasn't he wasn't bringing in a ringer for his own profit to you know I need to get this race win. Like that's that's not what happened here. Uh, and again, it doesn't seem like the other drivers were surprised by this. Like it sounds like everyone kind of was treating this like celebrity golf tournament. Yeah. <laughs> but I saw Elizabeth Blackstock talking a little bit about this on Twitter and, you know, sort of having the macro take on just this entire weird esports season mm. uh the, of motorsports we had, which is that nobody knows what the rules are. It's totally unclear as to how seriously people are supposed to take this. Um and that's largely been it's largely fallen to the competitors themselves to kind of decide to kind of decide how much of a real competition this is. Um, I think where one of the things that got really weird with IndyCar is that MSNBC, not MSNBC, uh, NBC Sports took it really seriously in terms of broadcast. Yeah, it is less clear to me how seriously the drivers themselves took it all. Uh, you know, you have guys like. Dale Earnhardt Jr., who are obviously just iRacing pros and, and care a lot about this. Lando obviously cares a great deal about it. Um, I'm not sure that everyone did. I think Pagenaud was a hypocrite because he took it super seriously until he decided to be a troll. 
Totally. Uh, which was totally shit behavior. But I think a lot of other guys were maybe playing a little fast and loose with it. But where it's gotten really muddy is that nobody's wanted to say, look, you have to treat this like a real race. And I think part of it is these events have tried to thro- like thread this needle between being serious quality motorsports competitions to get us through this uh, quarantine offseason. But then also they need to have good vibes, hanging with friends, yeah. uh, you know, characteristics to them. And I think that has been a tension that pretty much everybody's failed uh, to navigate successfully. There's been a, there's been something in every discipline yeah. that has left a bad taste in some. Indy, al- Indy almost did it. They had one lap left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, oh, they were so close to having like an ideal uh, esports thing. And then uh pageant. But anyway, it's wild. Um, Wild stories happening every almost every week. Uh, we almost did a uh, an emergency podcast last week, but it seemed like s- some of the, the some of the stories hadn't finished yet, so we decided not to because we we'd figure we'd have to follow up on it anyway this week. Um, but if you didn't know, there was quite a lot of movement in the driver market. Uh, the biggest news being Sebastian Vettel's departure from Ferrari, and we do have some more contacts for the uh, that this week. Uh, and then the other one being the not so surprising move of uh, Daniel Ricardo to McLaren, where he was sort of threatening to go before his um, not wonderful time at Renault, let's say. Uh, but we have a little bit more news on that and sort of where else we might see some of the drivers shaking down. Um, Rob, which one did you want to talk about first? Dieter on Vettel? Will I take that one? Uh yeah absolutely yeah okay so that Dieter Rankin uh was talking about uh Vettel's so the departure of Vettel from Ferrari has been a big sort of question mark on people uh, like uh, wondering why he did it was it a similar thing we thought of um in you know where he's left other places uh where he suddenly had a little bit of pressure from a teammate something like that um the uh. I guess what we're hearing, at least from Rankin here, is that um, the idea might have been that Ferrari just weren't putting enough in to try and keep him around. Um, I'm going to pull this quote here. Uh, Against that background, it is a little wonder Ferrari is believed to have offered Vettel only a one-year extension on vastly reduced terms from 2021 for under $10 million. That's less than a third of what he currently earns. Similarly, as little wonder Vettel rejected that deal instead of putting himself out in search of higher fees, either as a bargaining chip with Ferrari or to secure an alternative seat with a better deal. Um, so it seems like they sort of made an easy decision for him. That's Yeah, that's one of those weird things where, like, you're not firing somebody, but you're making them an offer that is guaranteed to be read as insulting. Totally. Um, which is a shitty way to go out, but... Yeah, and then the other side, I guess, uh, Rankin's reporting over at Race Fans was uh, about Hamilton. He mentioned a more likely scenario is that Hamilton, whose options narrowed after the Sainz signing, um, goes, sorry, we should also mention that Carlos Sainz went to Ferrari. I forgot to mention that, sorry. Um, goes for uh, seven titles and eight in 2021, then retires, triggering a Mercedes exit, which uh, coincides with the delayed change of formula. So as things now stand, Mercedes is an unlikely option for Vettel. Um there's also been some chat about Votas, uh, kind of where he might end up during all this, because this might be the time to to jump before you're pushed, or 
or to find somewhere else. I don't know. Um, but yeah, what any any thoughts on that on the Hamilton stuff? That sounds kind of I I don't know why he'd leave anywhere. Yeah, I or I anywhere. think uh, yeah, I think he's um. I I think the window for him doing the Ferrari thing is is closed. Um, I'm not sure how much that ever would have been a desire of his. Yeah. Um, and again, like at this point, two really good drivers went in a Ferrari and had a shitty time of it. Uh, do you really want to be the the next in a run of world champions who've gone to Ferrari for what turns into kind of a dismal valedictory phase yeah. of their career? Uh, I am interested. I, Rankin seems pretty convinced that. Mercedes is probably not long for the sport mm. uh, in the scheme of things, which I am. Uh, I don't know. I hope. I hope he's wrong. Uh, but it it seems like this this passage suggests to me that uh, he either, he thinks that Mercedes might be gone after that. Either way, Vettel's not going to sit on ice for two years and then come in. Yeah. To Mercedes, uh, if they decide to stick with the sport after Hamilton maybe leaves. Um, I think it's almost more likely that Hamilton sticks around just to see what the new generation of cars are like. Yeah, I bet, um, actually. It's just curiosity, right? Yeah. Um, and also, maybe worth mentioning that as part of this, I'm not sure if it's connected anyway, but Lawrence Stroll did hire the chief of Mercedes as the president of Aston Martin. Yeah, that sure is, again, like, everyone repeats denials of certain things. Like, Total Wolf is definitely not thinking about going to Aston Martin, but, like, Lawrence Stroll is assembling ex-Mercedes management right. over there. So who knows how all that's going to play out. But yeah, I think uh, Vettel's in a weird place. And I don't think there's good options for him. No, um, there really isn't. And uh, But I bet... God, could you imagine being in that situation, though? You, the last thing you'd want to do is... is, you know, driving through your teeth for Ferrari. Like wanting... being so bitter about it, but yeah. sticking around like... Well, he's got to this year. So already we're in that weird... Yeah, oh, God, like, you're he's right. Gonna, he's going to have this oh. weird, like, lame duck season at Ferrari. Like, everyone's got a weird lame duck season. Like, right. things are done at Renault. Um, we'll get yeah. to that in a second. But, yeah, so <laughs> Vettel's got to get through this. Uh, I think the best he can hope for is he has a good last run with, uh, at, with Ferrari and, and walks. Because uh, it just seems like... At this point, he would be contemplating midfield teams, and he has not enjoyed being down there. Nor has the nor is the life of a driver in the pack and sort of the cut and thrust of a competitive F one field that has not proven to be Vettel's uh, strong suit. No, I I think drivers like Kimi are ones that are able to knuckle down and kind of be there. Yes, yeah. I don't. It's like that thing everyone always wants. Let's see what Hamilton does in a Williams. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I I don't. In a way, I feel like Hamilton is now in a place in his career where he'd be able to, like, deal with that. But Vettel seems more twisty and angry now, even, than I feel like he was six or seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, I think part of it is drivers have tool sets. Um, Hamilton's better at that sort of wheel-to-wheel racing. Uh, Vettel has shown himself to be really reactive to the stress of it and the frustration of being in kind of a mediocre car and dealing with the vagaries of just traffic. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think he has good options. Um, let's like blue what, flags for him. He might like that. Yeah. <laughs> Fewer. Yeah. So I, I think he's, uh, I, I think he's in, in a tough spot. Uh, I think where this gets 
where else this gets interesting is the two choices that uh, McLaren and Ferrari have made here. Right. Uh, so, really quickly, Ricardo. I think we alluded to this last time. Ricardo had had the McLaren option uh, before, didn't exercise it. Right. Um, At the end of the so, 2018 season, I think, was it? Right. Uh, and so he ended up going to Renault in part because he'd been driving Renault engines for a while, as Drew was uh, fond of mentioning, like a lot of drivers have a feel for a certain type of power unit, and they try to stick with that. Uh, also, he sort of made the gamble that, hey, it's a manufacturer team. Like, this this will be a better option than, a cust- than any kind of customer can be. Uh, better to be driving for Renault than the team buying Renault engines. <laughs> Obviously, last year, McLaren moved back into contention for, uh, you know, P4 spots, at least, uh, if if not podiums. So, and things did not go well at Renault. Him leaving, uh, it was it was interesting. I think if you go back a few episodes, there was already kind of this theater going where Cyril Bittabool was was acknowledging that, you know, we have to really show progress for Daniel uh, and keep him... But I don't think anybody actually believed all hell would break loose this way. Like, no. My read on it was they were both doing a performance where neither of them had good options and they were going to sort of stand pat. Ferrari basically telling Vettel, like, eh, this is, uh, this is pretty much a wrap. Uh, that kind of threw everything into chaos. Uh, Cyril released a statement when Ricardo announced that after Ricardo announced he was gone. Sierra releases this statement. Uh, in our sport, and particularly within the current extraordinary situation, reciprocated confidence, unity, and commitment are, more than ever, critical values for a works team. Mm. Uh, so they're not taking it well. Yeah. <laughs> That's... It seems like this is the one of the problems he has, maybe. Like, they're in, like just think about where they were two years ago kind of on the rise all that optimism you know um seemingly well funded good driver uh you know two good drivers in many ways you know a, a sort of a, a a good hand and a and an exciting new driver coming in and this has just sucked all the air out of the room totally um yeah it's kind of an emperor's new clothes moment or something where it's like this one move has sort of like exposed them um in a way, and obviously all the COVID stuff isn't helping either. But yeah, it's uh, I wouldn't. What do you think about Cyril's um likelihood to to stick around in relation to this? Because like his plan, you know, but hasn't worked. He had a lot of riding on Daniel, and the performances weren't there. The car wasn't there. I know Daniel's not there. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I would need to pull up uh, the stuff we wrote for our preseason, mm. uh, our testing show. Because I can't remember like how rough did Renault look. I think the the thing that makes this tough is everyone thought they had this year to prove something. Everyone yeah. thought this was the year that it was like put up or shut up time, and now this year is kind of like already the asterisk asterisk season. Uh, they're gonna run this thing, but who gives a shit? Silly season's already happened. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe Hamilton gets another championship, but it'll be like the least meaningful of his career <laughs> in some sense. It'll be the least like you know impressive an accomplishment. Uh, and mind you, anyone else wins the championship, I think they'll be ecstatic. 
But yeah, uh, you if know. Hamilton wins, we'll all say it wasn't a real one. If anyone else wins, we'll all say it was a real one. Probably. Yeah, it was, oh, I like Hamilton. Clutch. Like, what a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'll just be it'll be a fun narrative. But totally. I, I yeah. think that in terms of drivers' careers, the season's already a wash. The trajectory of these programs, it's a wash. They're basically yeah. hitting do over next year, um, and I think it's just going to be really awkward. The vibes at Renault are just going to be so bad. They're going to be so bad. Because uh, you got Cyril feeling jilted for an entire season uh, while this program is maybe on life support. Mm. Who knows? Um, here's, here's something I've been thinking about, though. I know Leclerc is kind of the golden child at Ferrari. And he's got the five-year contract. I don't think... I don't think he's guaranteed to beat Sainz. No, I don't either. Like, when I think about his run last year, like, Leclerc was messy in a lot of races. Yeah. And, like, indicated that things could get under his skin in the way that they got under Vettel's skin. Um, you know, we talked about after getting pushed around by Verstappen, he was much more aggressive and much more elbows out as a driver, but starting to look a little bit more like the, uh, uh, the max of old, whereas max is is a much cleaner driver uh, than he used to be. Whereas the Claire is kind of sliding into being a slightly like messier, uh, combative one that is likely to draw some penalties. I think signs is kind of on the upswing. I don't think it's a guarantee at all that Leclerc is going to be, big man on campus at Ferrari. And I think that could, that could get weird too. He's got this five-year contract. Uh, what if Carlos shows up and just like makes it his team? Yeah. I think there's a lot of the momentum thing is definitely there where he had sort of like in a way, well, you know, I don't want to say nothing to lose. Cause obviously you can just totally ruin your first season of Ferrari and, and say sad, but like he was definitely sort of like the young, he was the number two driver for that team. He was a young guy coming in and he had sort of, Nothing to prove necessarily. He didn't, you know, he had to like prove he was a good driver, but he wasn't expected to beat Vettel. He'll be expected to beat Carlos Sainz this year, coming in yeah. new to the car, um, which is kind of unfair because he's younger than him. He has less F1 experience. Carlos Sainz is going to come in. He's been scrappy in that pack. He's like that. Those drivers in the mid pack do much more overtaking, much more fighting for position on these thin ass tracks than the ones up front do. Um, in fact, you could argue that while it wasn't his fault, they crashed into Lagos, he did touch his teammate in one of the fattest parts of the yeah. F1 calendar. So, like, I think uh, in many ways, Carlos is coming in with a really good tool set. He's got a little bit of a bee in his bonnet, maybe, about wanting to get for a big team. Um, and, yeah, I think he's got nothing to lose. In a way, I feel like, though, that this whole season will probably just be, like, a little forgotten afterthought when we get right down to it, I'm not really sure there'll be that much, many races for us to complete a sort of narrative about either, either driver, but I do think, like, Sainz is a good driver, and if, if yeah. they have a decent car, there's definitely going to be some work there. Um, interesting quote here you saw uh, in the notes about Sainz and his uh, relationship with Red Bull, though. Yeah, so I had forgotten about this. Uh, Rankin pulled it, I think, uh, but I remember when uh, France Toss said this, this was when Sainz was getting frustrated with the fact his career wasn't progressing at Red Bull because Red Bull kind of pulled out all the stops to advance Max. Yeah. And uh, they just never really seemed to consider Sainz for the big opportunities uh, that were coming up. 
And so he had put out in the media that he was a little frustrated and might not stick around. Um, and Franz Tost said, this is not a decision for Carlos Sainz. He has a Red Bull contract, and Red Bull decides what they will do in the future. Uh, which was just a really like heavy-handed way of handling it. Um, and well, He didn't stick around, did he? Of, no, he didn't. Now, they would have had the option to keep him around uh, if they'd wanted him, but they mm. sent him off to Renault, and he sort of escaped their orbit from there. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to look at, that for whatever reason, they just didn't see in him what made them give opportunities to Daniel Kvyat, to Pierre Gasly, yeah. uh, to Alex uh, Alban, and now he's just sort of, like, I can't think of a driver who has been this lucky in terms of him performing well, coinciding with a freakish series of silly seasons that have allowed him to just, like, it's like the anti-Hulkenberg. Yet. Uh, it's where, in a way, it's like the anti-Verstappen as well, though, because he wasn't given the opportunities necessarily, but he's kind of snakes and laddered his way. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? He didn't, like, take the long route like some of them did. He didn't get the opportunity to, but he just caught a ladder which shot him back up there. And now we have the mouth-watering possibility of him and Max Verstappen suddenly being toe-to-toe in different cars. Um, yeah, I think there's there's... Like, there's a possibility he gets exposed a little bit yeah. as, like, okay, there's a reason, like, you were not identified as the future. Right. Like, Ferrari's going to be a microscope, uh, the likes of which he has not encountered. Uh, but, yeah, I, I also think there's a good chance that he shows that, oh, in that in that new class of F1 driver that everyone, that everyone has talked about, you know, the, the Leclerc-Verstappen generation, mm. uh, Carlos Sainz should have been brought up in that discussion. Uh, and he has the chance to make that case for himself. Loads going on in the F1 season with no F1 races. Uh, should we move it on to emails? Uh, yeah, let's anything? get into it. Yeah, let's jump in. Uh, shiftf1podcast.gmail.com or you can go to f1.cool slash emails. Um, this almost came up in our news, but we decided just to read straight from the email because it was so good. Uh, this one from Andrew, uh, who was working the Darlington NASCAR race. Hi, guys. I worked for Goodyear and was at NASCAR's first race back on Sunday. I figure I'd share my experience with you since it was very much out of the ordinary for me. A typical race weekend involves flying in on Thursday with practice, qualifying, and races throughout the weekend. This can get very busy, especially on triple header weekends where a typical Friday schedule would see practice from all three series, that's Cup, Xfinity, and Camping World Truck, uh, qualifying from Cup and Trucks and a Truck Race. That's all on a Friday, jeez. Um, days like that are typically early in the morning and end late at night. Today was very different with the cars just being raced fresh off the truck that sounds good as hell right that sounds fun just show up with your race car and your truck you just drive that thing out of the track gassed up ready to go (laughs) let's go racing earlier this week nascar sent out a 27 page pdf with all plans and rules for how this race was going to be conducted it involved spreading the garage out into a space where the driver's rv normally are parked uh driver uh, sorry drive through temperature checks on the way in verification against a pre-approved roster list, staggered entry times by team and organization, and mandatory mask wearing at all times. NASCAR was clearly taking this seriously because breaking the mandatory mask rule would carry a fine ranging from $10,000 to $50,000. Our time slot to arrive at the track was 6.50am, but I was instructed to arrive at 2pm since our hauler had limited space inside. By the time I arrived, all the cars had already been pushed through tech inspections and the garage was a total ghost town. Normally on race day, the garage and pit road are bursting with fans and reporters, 
but today it was empty and eerily quiet, as if it were a testing day. Before the race, the drivers were quietly standing next to their cars, and the first PA announcement was the invocation, followed by the national anthem. The only people in the stands were the spotters, who were scattered across the top of the grandstand in order to get extra space. Some teams had better distancing plans than others. Penske had uh, assigned seats around their pit areas for all team members and were uh, required to bring their own coolers for drinking water, which each team normally keeps uh, in a big uh, rolling cooler behind their pit box. The funniest thing I saw was that for interviews, the driver had to talk into a microphone that someone was holding on a very long stick. <laughs> uh, once that race started, it's funny, I've seen so many people do that, and then UFC just has Joe Rogan like hugging people uh, during, it's, it's so silly. Uh, once the race started though, it was business as usual, albeit being even harder to communicate with people than normal, as you didn't have the benefit of lip reading to fill in the gaps created by the noise put out by these ridiculously loud race cars. All in all, I would say the return to racing went pretty well, with the first stage of the race being especially dramatic, and hope that we will get some more long-time viewers out of it. I look forward to racing again on Tuesday and Wednesday nights with Xfinity and Cup uh, coming back here for more. Keep up the good work. I love the podcast. And that's from Andrew. Super interesting. I'm so glad he sent that in. That was that was fascinating to read. Yeah, I saw pictures of the uh, the Darlington event, and it did look pretty wild. But also sounded like they'd done a really good job of figuring out like how do you hold a race under these circumstances. Uh, so it seems like there's a lot to go to school on there. Uh, our next one comes from Tyler, and it's about track design. I've heard you talk about Herman Tilke designs of long straights followed by tight corners over and over again, but I'm curious your thoughts on what makes good or well-designed tracks. Really old and probably not as well-designed tracks are classics like Spa and Silverstone, but newer tracks seem to suck. Were these just happy accidents? What are your favorite parts of tracks and why? What would, you be, what would your dream track look like if you could build the official Shift F1 podcast track? <laughs> But it's funny, it's hard to talk about this in a way without talking about the type of car you're racing because like car yeah. width and like overtaking uh, is so important. But yeah, well, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? What are some like track areas you like or, or aspects yeah. of tracks that feel good? So I like a big track. Mm -hmm. I, like I just do. I think the longer the track, the more fun. Amen. Uh, and the, like give me a long lap. And I think that has a few things. One is that a long lap reduces i suppose you can you can have a situation develop where the the lap is so long that drivers end up basically driving alone uh, for mm -hmm. the entire race but if the track is too short i think you start creating a lot of issues where uh lap traffic is always underfoot uh you're more likely to just have uh racing incidents happen that sort of break up the action uh and so i'd like you know i i like a long lap uh, but in terms of like the aesthetics, the quality of just like how a circuit feels, I think one of the major things is elevation. Yes. Like when I think about just what makes a track feel cool, like an event, elevation changes make racing exciting in a way that nothing else. Like Laguna Seca's corkscrew is just one of the coolest goddamn things in motorsports. That entire track is a race up what feels like a mountain. Uh, you know, on that lap, and then you go hurtling down uh, in Sector 3, and it's just utterly, like, gut-twisting. Uh, Watkins Glen, I wish they, I wish there was a modern uh, Grand Prix-compliant version of that circuit, because it is basically 
two hills and a valley between them and you race across them and every lap just feels like a roller coaster ride. Um, and it's visually dramatic, right? The light falls weirdly. I think your other thing to look at is like terroir, I suppose is the way to put it. Like when you're talking about elevation changes and such, a lot of times you're also implying existence of like the types of weather patterns that goes with like hills and forests, right? Right. And I think, uh, like that kind of variability can be really exciting. I think that, um, one of the things I miss about Malaysia, for instance, is that it was like crapshoot. Like every third year, there was a freaking monsoon uh, that hit. That remember that one year, everyone got the qualifying wrong and like tried to wait out yes. for like they they didn't go out in time, and so like top cars just got rained out, and they had to start from the back of the grid. Yeah, someone ridiculous qualified first. I remember. Yeah. Uh, so I think for me, like you start there, elevation changes, variable weather. Uh, and I think a lot of that is in tension with spectator experience. Mm. Like, elevation changes cut off lines of sight. I think one of the things that explain Tilki designs is, especially, like, the complexes you get at Abu Dhabi or Bahrain. I like Bahrain at this point. I think the night circuit is cool. I think it's a neat experience. But I think a lot of circuits are designed to sort of, okay, where can people post up and see the most of the race? Yeah. As someone who watches 90 Five percent of my race, even more than that. Like I've been to a bunch of F1 races at Indy in the past, but for me, motorsports is the thing I watch on TV. Mm. I don't like. I know I should, but I just don't care that much about the on-site spectator experience because, for what most people are going to experience, it's going to be how does this photograph on TV? And I think uh, part of what makes a lot of great circuits good is that they're not designed to try to artificially create. Um, really all-encompassing points of view on the racing action the way a lot of Tilki designs are. Yeah, totally. I think if you look at something like Sochi, it's just as flat as a pancake and you don't get that. Um, or Spy, you get those sweeping shots. Um, yeah, I'm like, I, I'm like you. I like long, especially in the current uh, generation, you know, the less stupid blue flags we can have or at least the more spread apart they are, the better. So I like them long. I like wide tracks. Um, unfortunately, both mm-hmm. of these things make them expensive. I like ones that are in remote locations, also makes them more expensive, harder to get people out to. Um, but I think the thing that I enjoy the most um, that you didn't mention yet is the is just like having flow. Like it's okay to have, yeah. like Monza is a good example of this, right? Monza is not a long track. It doesn't have that much elevation change. But the two s- slowest corners are almost back to back. You have turn one and you have turn three. And you've Carver Grande in the middle. And after that, it's a str- they don't stop. They go and they're at least in fourth gear until they get back around to turn one again. And that's fun. And drivers like that too. That's why they like the flow of Cota, where once you've done uh, the first turn, which would be a bur- boring turn on any other track except it's the hill, which I believe is also mostly artificial, um, to get them up there, it makes the in- entry to that way more interesting because of grip going up the hill. It makes the exit of it way more interesting because grip coming out of the hill and the camber that's there. Uh, and then from there, they essentially have like, I think like seven turns before they hit the the bottom of that DRS straight, which is also on a hill. Like that's why that one's fun. There's a bit of elevation change and there's just like a lot of driving to be done. Like same with like maggots and vecchets and cops and all that. You know what I mean? So I think that's where the frustrations with some of the more modern telcos are with the slowing down is that not only is it more prevalent, 
but they're also kind of in parts of the track where you're just like, ah, let them race a little bit more, right? Yeah. You want to slow the cars down a little bit, it's a better viewing experience, you can put stands in those areas, so, you know, you kind of get it. I think something else is uh, there needs to be runoff. Plentiful runoff. Mm. Uh, like, if drivers do not have room to make a mistake without getting taken out, uh, one, you're going to generate more accidents, which again slows down, uh, you know, the action. But also, one of the things we want to see is people to maybe chance a move. And right. maybe it's not going to work, but you want somebody to feel like, ah, I can try this dive down the inside. If it doesn't work out, uh, I have the option of bailing out and going on to the tarmac or whatever, you know, to, to the inside of the corner. And the person I'm trying this dive on can cut it wide and maybe run off onto the grass or something. We both, our race continues, hmm. uh, even if this goes wrong. I think there's a lot of races on the calendar where uh, even if it's not necessarily too complicated, like Singapore isn't that complicated a track, but anything that goes wrong takes you out. Yeah. Whereas Bahrain, you're you're on a dune. Like Bahrain, there's like almost nowhere you can take yourself out. Yeah. Uh, it's barring <laughs> contact with another car. Like bumper cars, yeah, it's like a, going out on yeah. a car track or something. I think a really good example of like a track that sort of breaks a lot of rules but does it well is Suzuka because it's a it's a counterclockwise track with an initial right turn. I guess they get away with that because the whole thing is a figure eight, so that's a big part of it. But it's 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 a track where they do slow the cars down pretty frequently, especially at the you know first sector and a half where it's up in the hills a bit. But like it's fun. There's interesting novel corners that the turns have to sort of. You know, they have that creative restriction of being part of the terrain there, so they have to flow with them a little bit. There's some boring turns there, but they're some of them are tricky, like but all in all it's just a fun, you know, racetrack. It just sends them up into the woods and brings them back down, kinda like spa, but just like way shorter. Um it's just there's a lot going on. It feels like it's got different sections. Like just as a racetrack, it's a lot of fun. They've had to do a lot of work to like, you know, take the edge off one thirty R and 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 the the chicane at the at the end isn't ideal. It's sort of it's a bit messy and people jump over it a lot. But it's a cool track and it has visually has its own thing going on with the grandstands down by the start and and the uh, the the woods up in the back of it where it seems a bit more remote. Um, yeah, so it uh, it's a lot of things I think. But I think that I think some of the more modern tracks have felt like they've come. They feel uh, just a little bit too weekend racery for me like they're they're trying to do both which makes sense it's a sustainability thing but yeah i think uh yeah we should yeah just let us let us making tracks is easy right we'll just we'll just make our own they should add a track creator into f1 2020 that'd be fun look the excite bike had this feature 30 years ago <laughs> why do i not have it uh for a modern race our track? factor ones probably are really hard to make and our last email this week comes in from dean uh, this is about Botas. I kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, today, F1i.com rumored that Botas is in talks with Renault. And this makes a lot of sense given Toto and Cyril's relationship, uh, which might mean that George will move from Williams to Mercedes to be second driver until Lewis's retirement. Uh, what's your take on this? I am attaching articles as well in case you want to add them to the show notes, which I will. Thank you very much, Dean. Yeah, I think to me, this this is more, it's, it's more the issue of George Russell to me, where I can see his relationship with, with Mercedes obviously is very tight. Uh, his relationship with uh, Toto, who is currently at Mercedes, is very tight. The idea that Hamilton may stick around a little longer now, or might stick around to get seven or eight seasons, if we're listening to Dieter Rankin's reporting, at that stage, 
is it a situation where, because they're happy with Botas, I'm sure. He's a perfectly good number two driver. Does the job, doesn't get in the way. But at a certain point... There's do been you, that do persistent you, thing every year, though, where they've kind of done the, like, show us what you've got. Yeah. But I, I guess I kind of feel like the bigger risk they have is that he's not Hamilton. So do they try... Well, I guess also, the, are they going to stay in the sport? <laughs> the big question. But yeah. If they wanted out of Hamilton... Do they need to start bringing in someone like a George Russell sooner rather than later and then push Valtteri out? I, I can't see them rocking the boat in the next two years anyway. Yeah, so like the reporting, so I was trying to do a little bit of like how real are these rumors? The most credible source, per, the most credible person I see repeating this is Ted Kravitz. Okay. Uh, who, you know, is a pit lane reporter and such, like probably has some decent information about what's going on. But this also feels like one of those things that just generates like more more gossip, right? Like this is sort of your your clickbait headline of like how well found. Like, like at this point, everybody's exploring everything. Right. Like, yeah. like <laughs> discussions are always happening. <laughs> yeah. But do we think it's likely? I think your read is fundamentally correct. Like he had an off year two years ago. He was in good form last year, but I think you know as you alluded to. And as people have pointed out uh, in previous letters to us, like in terms of what you want from a number two driver, you don't get much better than Valtteri Bottas. Mm. Like you just you don't. Like uh, Mercedes has an unusually strong driver lineup, and even if there are better drivers available than Valtteri Bottas, like your number two driver isn't necessarily there to be the fastest. They are there to generate points and protect your grid position. You know, if Hamilton had like how many times. Hamilton doesn't get the pole. He's losing it to Valtteri. Yeah, that's that is an unusual, uh, that is an unusual degree of uh, equality between drivers, and you don't get much better uh, than that. Usually, you you start to see maybe a little bit more of a performance fall off uh, from driver A to driver B. Uh, so I don't think, I don't think it is a great move. I think. What maybe could drive it is Valtteri talked about this last year when Hamilton won the championship, which was that it's kind of demoralizing being Lewis Hamilton's teammate. Right, yeah. Because uh, you're not, he's kind of unbeatable. And, and every year. Yeah, that's... and every year you're compared to him and you get beaten. Um, but I think if you're Valtteri, you're also smart enough to realize that like, it's not because you're being treated like the number two driver that's stopping you from right. winning a championship at Mercedes. It's that your teammate is Lewis Hamilton. That surely should make it easier, you would think. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then it's then it's just fair and it's just, you know, unlucky. Michael Phelps exists. You're the, you're yeah, the silver I, medalist. Yeah. And, like, is that rough? Yeah, it is. On the other hand, enjoy the ride. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sure he's probably getting paid more there than he, will any, he would anywhere else. Like, yeah, I, so I think he's done. I think he's probably at his career zenith. You know what I mean? Like, not not to speak ill of Valtteri Bottas, but like, he's not, you know, he's, I don't think anyone was expecting him to be a championship winner at any stage in his career. No, I think maybe they hoped he looked so strong at Williams before he went to Mercedes. Yeah. But, you know, that he went from Williams to Mercedes and has been a good number two good to t- Lewis Hamilton. Good timing as well. Get- yeah, it doesn't get much better than that mm. uh, as an F1 career goes, uh, especially because nobody in in the last like 15 years of F1, 
nobody gets to be the championships champion except for like three guys. Right. <laughs> like you either have the winning car or you don't. Oh, yeah. Valtteri's had the winning car, but he's been up against the best driver in the field. He could go to a different team and be away from that dynamic, but then he'd be in a worse car. Uh, so yeah, I like. I don't think it makes a lot of sense for him. I don't think it makes a ton of sense for Mercedes because all their options, with the possible exception of Russell, like if I were that, thinking yeah. I want a young driver in who is comfortable being a bit self-effacing and fading to the background a little bit behind Hamilton, Russell seems very much like that kind of driver. Mm. Uh, diffident is the way I would describe it. you already have that, and you're going to put him under more pressure. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just don't know. Time will tell, and all is possible in 2020. Silly season. Uh, if you want to follow us for all that hot news in the meantime between all these podcasts, please follow us at Shift F1 Podcast. On the Twitters, I am at Daniel Dwyer. He is Rob Z- at Rob Zachney, right? Yep. Perfect. Uh, before we take us to the end, we got first we got a race around the world. There is racing. It's coming up. It's happening. Some of it's this week, some of it's later on. NASCAR is racing today at 8 p.m. Uh, ET, which is how far away? That's like two hours from now, Rob? I think. Yes. Awesome. Two hours from now. So long so after does, this podcast. Fuck all good for people listening <laughs> to this podcast. The Alsco uniforms 500 is at uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway um, as the NASCAR schedule continues. Uh, let me just check when the next one is after that then to make sure I've got something. I don't think it's for a, a little while. Um, uh, For a couple of days. May 27th. We're in May 27th. 31st. May 31st. The the Food City presents the Supermarket Heroes 500. Cool. It's at Bristol Motor Speedway. Bristol, Tennessee. 500 laps of hot, fuel-injected deliciousness. 266 miles you can catch on Fox Sports 1 um, or PRN. I'm not quite sure what PRN is. That's some sort of broadcaster. I'm sorry. Maybe it's a digital service. Uh, Indy is also back, but not this week, but probably before we talk to you again, June 6th, the Genesis 300 is on at Texas Motor Speedway. There is, of course, electronic racing. There is always electronic racing. In the 27th, we have the All-Star E-Series for Australian supercars. They are racing Imola and Interlagos in iRacing. On the 27th, we have IMSA Racing doing their thing. On the 29th, we have Formula Renault's eSports Series doing some iRacing in Interlagos. Uh, The IMSA stuff has been in iRacing too. Uh, but then shaking it up with Formula E's or Factor 2, we have the Race at Home Challenge, the latest one on the 30th, minus Daniel <laughs> Now with well, 100% less Daniel Apt. Although you could argue that it was 99% less Daniel Apt last <laughs> week. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in many ways, things uh, things haven't changed all that much. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash f one um, we have some Patreon stuff coming in the next few weeks, uh, as well as more fun, good stuff over on youtube.com slash shift F1. So if you want to watch us doing some more racing, we did have, uh, the Monaco races up. We did have, um, uh, a second camera for that. We're going to hopefully get all three and uh, next time around. So it was fun to see the action from, from more perspectives than mine. Um, but yeah, that's it. Any other, anything else to say this week, Rob? It's been a pleasure. I miss Drew, but we'll, he'll, he'll have time again next week, next two weeks. It's been a blast. Yeah. Uh, and 
just imagine all this news. If the three of us had to chew it over, we'd be podcasting for two more hours. Could you imagine? It's been 90 minutes. It's, it's been a lot. I feel better this way, though, because if we'd done it last week, all we would have had was the Vettel thing and none of the none of the shake around. So. Um, so we will be back. Unless something crazy happens in the next week, we'll jump back for an emergency podcast. But until then, uh, we hope you're all keeping well, and uh, we will see you next time. Meow. Yeah.